Do you like a good scare? Do you have a dark and disturbing imagination? Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The New Shiver Show. I am Mary Labrie, your host, here with my co-host, Greg Flynn. The Shiver Show brings you strange and chilling tales of crime, horror, and science fiction from the golden era of radio, as well as new contemporary productions. Greg, we're about to listen to The Telltale Heart. Any advice for the listener? Uh, Well, this is true gothic horror, like Bram Stoker's Dracula and Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There's lots of brooding blood and beastly behavior, so beware. (laughs) Oh, I love the alliteration. And remember, folks, this was written in 1843. It's still fresh. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It's impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived it haunted me day and night. Object there was none, passion there was none. I loved the old man. He'd never wronged me, he'd never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. One of his eyes resembled that of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man and and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded with what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed so that no light shone out. And then... I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. (laughs) Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then when my head was well in the room... I undid the lantern cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much 
that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights, every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he'd passed the night. So, you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no, his room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close-fastened through fear of robbers, so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing it on steadily. I had my head in and was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening and the old man sprang up in the bed crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle. And in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief, oh no. It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well, Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he'd been lying awake ever since the first slight noise when he'd turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him, He'd been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He'd been saying to himself, It's nothing but the wind in the chimney. It's only a mouse crossing the floor, or it's merely a, a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he's been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he'd found all in vain. All in vain. Because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. And it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence 
my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a single dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray as if by instinct precisely upon the damned spot. And now have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses? Now, I say, there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I've told you that I'm nervous, so I am. And now at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet for some minutes longer I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder. Louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once. Once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length, it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. 
There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot, whatever. I'd been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused, information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted familiar things. But ere long I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definitiveness until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale. But I talked more fluently and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound, much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observation of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, louder, louder. And still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no. No, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark. Louder, 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 louder. Villains, I shrieked, dissemble no more. I admit the deed. Tear up the planks. Here, here, it is the beating of his hideous heart. 
Well, Greg, what did you think of The Telltale Heart? What's wonderful about this production, unlike uh, some radio adaptions where the scriptwriters have added dialogue between the characters, in this one, the narrator is actually reading the text of Poe's story. So you get a real feeling for Poe's flair for macabre melodrama, and you can experience his gift as a writer. Uh, For example, when the uh, narrator's telling you, and he keeps saying, you, dear listener, you, that he's sane, but there's this frenzied, jerky writing style in key places, which convinces you, let's leave aside what he's doing, but that also convinces you that he's not, hasn't got all his marbles, that he's crackers indeed. It's it's a beautiful, once again, it is like in the Venn diagram of the Shiver Show, it's crime horror once again. And um, his beautiful sort of, calm, like he starts out quite calm. He sounds like quite a reasonable, sensible man. Very meticulous. This is one of the things I love about Poe's writing is when there's something incredibly gruesome taking place, it's also very meticulous and methodical in the way that it's happening. He's telling you what he did, and um, I think Poe does that so beautifully. And don't forget, he's not mad, I tell you. He's not at all mad. Not at all. No, he's not not at all (laughs) mad, no. Now, now here's something I should ask you as a woman, that uh, some commentators have noted that the narrator is not uh, identified as male or female, and the main character could indeed be a woman. But I think a woman would have been smarter than this guy Oh, the narrator certainly could have been female. Yeah. And I've heard it yeah. read. I've heard it read by female actors. Ah, mm. all right. Um, it, because I don't I don't see it actually, because so this I this is a male approach, I think, which is to um uh suddenly leap into the bedroom with a yeah, a loud yell. Uh, then he kills the uh, poor old man by pulling the heavy bed on top of him, then dismembers the body. Now I think a woman would have been smarter than that. I think a woman would have just crept into the bedroom each night and then stolen the old man's Lipitor. I don't know what that is. What is Lipitor? Well, uh, that's that's a cholesterol-lowering medicine. Yeah. Well, they do say that women don't use violence normally to commit a a murder. They tend to use poisoning or something like that, uh, something where they don't have to physically get, you know, down and dirty. So in this case, I, I thought uh, knocking off his uh, cholesterol-lowering medicine, slowly removing it. So th- that's the subtle way, I think. I mean, I, I don't, but I don't want to give listeners any uh, any ideas. <laughs> no, no, or 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 endorse any activities. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but there's no doubt that the narrator uh, really puts the creep in creepy. <laughs> Uh, he's an unsavory brute. What, what a horrible, what a horrible person! And when you look at the illustrations for the original story, you can see he's got the. I mean, here, here, there's the poor old man in bed, and then there's this horrible creature, this sort of elongated um, creature with mad eyes. He, he having mad eyes as well as the guy with the uh, the vulture eye. That uh, point you made earlier about the meticulous um, writing by Poe. And I did like, if likes the word, the way he describes slowly opening the door, starting at midnight, little by little, and it takes almost an hour until suddenly he's got enough room to pop his whole head through. A bit, a bit like, here's Johnny. Bah! 
<laughs> yeah. So now there is, um, uh, I, I just wanted maybe to talk a little bit about Poe and his own backstory and how it relates to this story or how people believe it might relate to the story. Because Edgar Allan Poe, um, his parents were actors and they were very poor. And um, they both died um, within a year of each other. So, and he was at that point, I think, um, in his early teens. And he was fostered to a family called the Allen family, uh, very wealthy. They were from Virginia. Uh, and the gentleman that uh, was the head of the household, Mr. Allen, he never really embraced him as a son. And when uh, Poe got to, um, I think, uh, when he exited high school, um, and started uh, uh, his sort of military and um, tertiary education, Allen completely disowned him. But Edgar Allan Poe kept his name in his name. And so a lot of um, people who are experts on Edgar Allan Poe believe that this story has a little bit of that sort of, you know, daddy issues um, because, you know, this gentleman, it's not clear who he is in relation to the narrator. Is he a father? Is he an uncle? Is he just a, somebody boarding in the house. It's quite, it's quite ambiguous, and, and we like that about it. There's certainly no need for the specialists at CSI to get involved in this case, or to use a 19th century example, Sherlock Holmes, because there you have that scene. It must be the easiest murder-solving moment of the three cops who arrives careers. I mean, you've got the narrator. Uh, he starts pacing the floor, then he hits the uh, timber floorboards with a chair, and then he suddenly shouts, I admit the deed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tear up the planks, tear up the planks. <laughs> These coppers must have been sitting there saying, wow, this is what we like. Early in the morning, crime solved already. Um, I remember when I heard this story for the first time, I was probably like eight or nine. And it was read out in class, which was a bit dark, but never mind. And I remember being very proud of myself because I actually understood that the heart was his heart. Because a lot of the kids in the class thought it was a ghost, like a ghost heart thumping away. No, I think it's the narrator's heart that's that's beating. Uh, because I, I hate to say it, but I think the the poor old man may have gone to his reward. Uh, so he's, there's no no booming coming from below those floorboards. No super supernatural elements going on here. It's just guilt. And and what did you think about the pale blue evil eye, the the vulture eye? What what did that represent? Well, first of all, I thought the narrator is ageist because you know as you get older, you know you you some of your features become less attractive. This is just what happens in life, and occasionally one has a bit of a cataract. The thing is that he is um, evil and wants to kill this man, and he'll find any reason that he can because there isn't any other motivation that you're aware of. He doesn't even mention money as being a motivation. Yeah. Just like it reminded me a bit of Crime and Punishment. Have you have you read that book by Dostoevsky? I have indeed, yes. Wonderful yeah, book, right? A long, time, a long time ago. Don't ask me anything specific. <laughs> but, you know, he he comes up with a rationale for killing her. But but in actual fact, I think he just wants to do it. That's that's And, and then he has to deal with the fact what that means about him, you know, and I think it's the same with this guy. He just wants to do it. Well, there was one thing that worried me. I read one commentator that uh, he said that, uh, well, he speculated that uh, Poe was thinking aloud that, um, in fact, um, he put himself in the role of the narrator 
and he was going to take revenge on those who'd criticized his writing. So the old man was, in fact, a literary critic in bed. Now, this is slight, drawing a long bow, but however, on that thought, and I say this to the ghost of uh, Edgar Allan Poe, I'm a fanboy, Edgar, I'm, I'm a fan, so please don't at midnight start slowly opening my bedroom door because I don't think my ha- my heart could stand it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We love you, Edgar. Yeah, just stay out of the bedroom at midnight. That's all for today's show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy all things macabre and downright scary, then follow us on social media. You'll find us at The Shiver Show, which is Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. Good night, Mary. Good night. <laughs>